Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Emma Klein i samtal med Ika Johannesson. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sägelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Hello. So Emma, would you like to start with reading something for us? Sure. Um, I'll just read the, the very first page of the book. Um, I looked up because of the laughter and kept looking because of the girls. I noticed their hair first, long and uncombed, then their jewelry catching the sun. The three of them were far enough away that I saw only the periphery of their features, but it didn't matter. I knew they were different from everyone else in the park. Families milling in a vague line, waiting for sausages and burgers from the open grill. Women in checked blouses, scooting into their boyfriend's sides. Kids tossing eucalyptus buttons at the feral-looking chickens that overran the strip. These long-haired girls seemed to glide above all that was happening around them, tragic and separate, like royalty in exile. I studied the girls with a shameless, blatant gape. It didn't seem possible that they might look over and notice me. My hamburger was forgotten in my lap, the breeze blowing in minnow stink from the river. It was an age when I'd immediately scan and rank other girls, keeping up a constant tally of how I fell short and I saw right away that the black-haired one was the prettiest. I had expected this, even before I'd been able to make out their faces. There was a suggestion of otherworldliness hovering around her, a dirty smock dress barely covering her ass. She was flanked by a skinny redhead and an older girl, dressed with the same shabby afterthought, as if dredged from a lake, all their cheap rings like a second set of knuckles, They were messing with an uneasy threshold, prettiness and ugliness at the same time, and a ripple of awareness followed them through the park. Mothers glancing around for their children, moved by some feeling they couldn't name, women reaching for their boyfriend's hands. The sun spiked through the trees like always, the drowsy willows, the hot wind gusting over the picnic blankets, But the familiarity of the day was disturbed by the path the girls cut across the regular world, sleek and thoughtless as sharks breaching the water. Thank you. <laughs> It was a short one. <laughs> <laughs> This introduction really says it all of what the, of what the book is about. It's about love, self-doubt, um, the wanting to belong, and also the very strange period of, be, of the between stage of a girl and a young woman. And I have so many questions to ask you about all of these things. Uh, but let's begin with uh, one thing. It's been called, before I started reading it, everyone was like, have you read the sect book? <laughs> <laughs> everyone, it's kind of been called the sect book. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, um, why did you start to become interested in the Manson family? Because I know that you have been yeah, for a really long time. interested by them. Uh, I think most of it comes from just growing up in California, where it's still so much in the air and so much a part of the mythology of the state. 
both of my parents are from California. Uh, my dad grew up in LA where the murders happened. Um, and his childhood home was a mile away from the Polanski house. Uh, so to him, it was this really visceral part of his childhood. And uh, almost the first moment that fear and violence became this tangible thing out in the world. And both of my parents really talk about it as this moment uh, when people started locking their doors. That before that happened, everyone left their door unlocked, and then suddenly they became aware that the home was not a sacred space, that it could be violated. So when did you, so you've always heard about it since you were young. Yeah, so I, I knew the name growing up, um, and he was, Charles Manson was always a boogeyman kind of character to me. I didn't under, I was too young to understand that he was in prison. I thought he just sort of roamed around, <laughs> <laughs> like a bad Santa Claus. Um, but uh, maybe in high school, I really started reading about the actual case and learning more about it. And for me, right away, uh, the girls uh, were really where my interest lay. Uh, they were so young. In the pictures I saw of them, uh, you know, they looked like people I knew. Um, some of them were 19 and 20. And, you know, I was 14 or 15 at the time I was reading about them. So something about seeing the faces of these, these girls who look so innocent. And then the, those faces next to the knowledge of what they had done. There was something about those two images juxtaposed that, that interested me. And also the images, I mean, their faces expressed no remorse. Right. And they were defiant yeah. almost. They almost have a religious devotion mm -hmm. where they look angelic, like in the throes of, of a vision of some kind. Mm. I mean, that mesmerized an entire world. Right. An entire, it's, it's been such a big mark in popular culture. Yeah. I think um, we're so used to male expressions of violence. Mm. That's become horrifically commonplace, where I think it almost doesn't surprise us anymore. Uh, but I think in this instance, it was these, these very young women committing violence, and there's still something about that that's very surprising. Um, and then also the way the, the Manson story really brought together Hollywood and, and the music industry, it really acted as a lightning rod for, for so many aspects of the 60s. Mm. I've read um, three short stories that you've written. That's uh, all I've written, so. <laughs> you've really I've covered I've read your my entire production. <laughs> whole, uh, catalog. It's on our website, they're really good. <laughs> you should go in and read them. And in two of those three, you also mentioned the Manson family. And so but how so would you say <laughs> that you're interested, like how, how obsessed have you been with uh, yeah, um, to me, th there was a moment when I was really interested in the actual case, and then it almost, I, I feel like I passed beyond it to a certain sense where I'm more interested in the place it, it occupies in popular culture and, and cultural consciousness, especially in California and the West Coast, even just as a visual trope almost. To me, the, the case itself has been drained of so much of, of the reality of the murder, and I'm, I'm more interested in, in the symbols of it almost and uh, the way it's infiltrated the culture. When did you decide to, uh, to use the, the sect setting for your book as a frame? Um, I think I, I saw some similarities to be drawn between the experience of, of being an adolescent in the world and also the experience of wanting to belong to this, this group. Um, I feel like teenagers live at such a high pitch already they're already, everything feels like life and death to a teenager, even if it's a bad haircut. Uh, and you know, their, their emotions are so intense and real to them. And it's almost like 
they're already living at that pitch where things feel like a crime. And then I, I was very interested in have, contrasting that with a very real crime and sort of putting those two things together. Mm. So the story in your book is, of course, not the Manson story, but has very many likenesses. How did you uh, decide to stick that kind of close to the real story? Yeah, um, I feel like I was really influenced partly by the Manson family and then also Jonestown, mm. uh, which was another group that started in Northern California. Somehow we grow them <laughs> out there in California. Uh, and then other cults and um, communes that didn't end in violence, uh, some of which still operate in California. Um, and that, you know, now they have a website. That's like the main difference. Uh, but so to me, I, I use little bits and pieces of them. Um, and I, I wasn't interested in any way in trying to make a, a record of, of the actual Manson case. It's almost like at this point, I don't even know the, the timeline anymore. I couldn't tell you the, the names of everyone involved. Uh, I feel like I'm much more engaged in, in the mythology of it. And so taking almost the archetypal parts from the Manson story, uh, almost sensations and moods that I remember and, and trying to weave something new, something that could be fresh. I feel like the Manson story has been so, it's, it's been wrung of any urgency it's been told so many ways and, and it's sort of a funny moment in the culture where suddenly this year there's so many Manson things out. You know, I feel like there's a TV show, uh, there's other sort of movies that really try to engage with, with the story on a factual basis. And to me, that, there's something tricky there because we, we're all familiar with the story and, and uh, the charismatic cult leader is a, almost a cliche at this point. So I thought there must be some way to engage with the story uh, where I could just use it as a jumping off point to talk about different things. Mm. When you started uh, working on this, on the story that became this book, what was your idea to write about from the beginning? Um, for me, it, it always began with the older character. It was never just the younger version of Evie. Uh, I think there's so many people in California that I grew up with especially who are still haunted by the 60s. A lot of people moved there in the 60s to, to the part of California where I'm from, uh, often in this big rush of idealism, uh, often to live in a commune. And, and then they stayed and, and had to engage with the real world and became either disappointed or uh, enlivened by that experience to whatever degree. Uh, and so I thought of someone who, who had been involved in this infamous group but, but hadn't done anything. And that moral ambiguity immediately sparked this sense that I, that I could maybe write a novel about it. Um, and I also thought about all the people who are on the, on the periphery of history, the people whose stories we never hear. I think we're, as I said, so familiar with the main players. Um, and there's something about looking, looking at a famous event from the side that I think illuminates something fresh about it. Mm. I was kind of wondering why you kept Evie from going to the house. Oh, why you got her thrown out of the car? <laughs> you wanted her to to murder. <laughs> would have been interesting too. <laughs> yeah. No, because th those that uh, would have been interesting to to see uh, the older Evie uh, trying to uh, thinking about what the younger Evie had done than if she had yeah. done something worse. Yeah, um, I guess to me that would be such a different book mm. to to try to. It's like looking straight at the sun, you know, trying to engage with that level. Um, of action and, and trying to follow a character that it, to that dark of a place. I think 
is, a, is an interesting challenge for fiction, but not, not what I wanted to do in this book. I think, to me, there's uh, the ambiguity of, of her situation in that she didn't make the decision. Someone else made it for her. So there's almost a part of herself that she can never really know mm -hmm. and will always have to wonder about. To me, that's such a specific form of torture and, and acts in such a strange way on your psychology. And, and I could really engage with that character as an adult um, to always live in that space of not knowing. And I also thought about what if you were involved in this terrible thing, but it was still maybe the only time you felt connected to other people or mm. really truly seen? What would that mean? How would you tell that story to yourself? One thing that I've thought of while, because I've also had like a Manson addiction uh, kind of face, like very many people I know, especially women, yeah, because it is so something so very interesting with these girls, as you mentioned at the beginning. But uh, but it also sparks the question that Evie has, like, could I have done it? Right. Yeah. <coughs> I think uh, in this book, she she really feels like she she could have done it because something is familiar to her about female rage um, and a certain kind of anger and and violence. I think women are are taught, at least in the U.S., um, to turn so much of their violence inwards. Here too. And I think a lot of like we're very familiar with women inflicting violence on themselves. Uh, eating disorders and cutting, I feel like that's often uh, the avenue that it, mm. it comes out in. Uh, so I think for her to have seen this person that she really loved and, and felt close to, even though that's a projection, the relationship is so much built on fantasy, uh, to see this person be involved in this darkness made her feel like there must be something similar in her. I don't know if that's true, actually. Mm. To me, this book is is less about the sect, and it's more about Evie and that really, really weird face when you're 13, 14, you're going into womanhood. Um, there's a line in the introduction that I like so much that you just read that's uh, already comparing myself to them and seeing where I fall short. Right. That is, uh, I recognize very much from my own adolescence and yeah. I'm guessing that many uh, people here do too. Yeah. So to me, it's uh, what I take from the book is Evie and all her thoughts right. as a young woman. Right. Because I think you capture that so so uh, exquisitely, all the different uh, conflicting uh, emotions and what yeah. happens. So I was wondering, how did you, do you remember so much from your own adolescence or did you do research to get into back into that? frame of mind? Um, I actually, I reread my diary. I kept a diary in high school uh, and I reread it before I, I started work on this novel. And it's funny because of course you, you wish that you were a really thoughtful, profound teenager. Mm -hmm. You were actually different than other teenagers. But uh, the combination of just like banality and melodrama <laughs> in my diary. Examples, examples, oh, please. Just, uh, you know, very, you know, a, a huge range of emotion in one day. And, and just the drama. Uh, it's like being in a washing machine almost where you can't, you, you can only feel your emotions. You can't put them into any kind of context. Uh, and yeah, so petty. <laughs> um, so I think that was helpful. And and what's so helpful about having an older narrator who can contextualize and and put it in, in context where a teenager can't. Um, 
And then also, I'm from a really big family. I'm the eldest of five girls. So I have four younger sisters. You uh, have seven children in your seven family. Seven children. Um, a little cult. No murder. Yes. <laughs> um, all respect to your mother <laughs> who yes. birthed all these children. <laughs> uh, but I mean, there was a moment when there were five teenage girls in my household. We were all living at the same time in my parents' house. And, and so female adolescence especially feels very familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> and you're pretty close in age too, right? Yeah, my mom had seven kids in 10 years. <laughs> and I'm one like of your sisters <laughs> is here as well? Yeah, my, with one you? of my sisters is here. Um, Hillary, who's Hiding my next somewhere. youngest sister. <laughs> so, um, so crafting Evie, um, what were your biggest... Um, uh, did you... Um, I'm losing the word here. What was the biggest challenge in crafting the young Evie? Yeah, um, I think it's so easy to turn teenagers into symbols. Um, they're a demographic that, that it's really easy to dismiss as well. Like what? Um, like what? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Especially teenage girls are often like the symbol of purity or everyone talks about teenagers as being what's wrong with the culture. You know, they're, they're really flattened into this, this gang. Um, and sometimes I think their feelings aren't aren't legitimized by adults because, of course, adults can see the full picture in a different way. Um, but so I, I really wanted to write about a teenage girl, especially uh, who had contradictory elements, who was allowed to be fully human. Um, I feel like she's an interesting character. She both puts herself in danger often. And then it's, it's very innocent. She's a, a strange combination of both innocence and almost willful. Um, she's trying so hard to not be innocent. And, and she can also be manipulative. I think those are things we're used to seeing in, in male characters. But I think it's, it's trickier to write female characters in that way. The first time she got drunk alone by herself in the daytime, I was a bit surprised, I must say. <laughs> no, really, because it's, she, she does make some surprising choices. Yeah. And that, and that uh, I mean, that of course uh, made the book all the more exciting to read. Yeah. But um, when, when telling the story of, of Evie, like in, the, in, in 69, there aren't that many other um, uh, symbols of that time. Right, yeah. Why did you choose to make it? It's kind of timeless. It, it doesn't have yeah. like very many popular culture markers or anything in it. I think it's funny because the 60s is it's such a huge influence on popular culture, especially for me growing up in Northern California. That was the music we listened to in high school. Mm. My first concert I ever went to was a Joan Baez concert. <laughs> <laughs> Very uncool. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it still lives. It's so vivid um, as a cultural moment. I think we're all familiar with, with images from that time, too. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's this expectation of, of what a novel set in the 60s would look like. And I really wanted to push back against that in a lot of ways. And uh, I think it helps to, to think about how people experience their cultural moment. Um, I think mostly people are concerned with the, the people who are around them and, and who they love and who they hate. And, and that's what dominates their emotional landscape. And it's not so much politics. I think that's, especially for a 14-year-old girl, mm. uh, I think cultural markers are really low on the, on the board. Um, and also... Another diary that I read. I, my mom kept a diary in 1969, which I read. Um, How old was she then? I think 13. Oh, you're writing about your mother, maybe. <laughs> she <laughs> killed someone. 
Um, <laughs> but how was her diary? Did she did she let you read it? Just yeah, like yeah. Um, and there's nothing too exciting in it. But it's funny because you expect it's such a tumultuous moment in mm -hmm. history. Um, and, you know, you you think on every page, oh, man landed on the moon today. Like all this exciting things. But it's just, I got a terrible haircut. Like, I hate Bobby. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> but I, to me, that, that really focused um, the writing I did about the 60s. I think it's distracting if, if someone hits too many cultural markers. Mm. And also, like you said, I wanted there to be some, some feeling to the story that is timeless. Because I think there's something very universal about, about the story and the desire to belong. Mm. Have you read... Um, well, I can start by... Uh, there are many quotes that I carry with me um, from the book. Because, partly because uh, I was young once, but I also have two daughters. Uh, there aren't uh, teens yet, but soon. And there's this one quote that really, really got me and uh, made me both sad and angry. And it's, it's this quote. All that time I had spent readying myself, the articles that taught me life was really just a waiting room until someone noticed you. The boys had spent that time becoming themselves. And, and all... I got, you know, thrown back to all the issues of Vecorevin, which was a teen magazine that I wrote about how to do the perfect, like, triangle, right. the triangular shape with the eye yeah. shadow and, and oh. just waiting. My diaries are also full of, like, oh, Johan uh, looked at me today on the bus. It's yeah. like, you get your whole validation oh. from, from, like, what yeah. your book is about, being seen and being made to belong. But so, um, it's really, oh, I'm sorry. It really uh, hits hits home in that yeah. way, um, and definitely. I'm just thinking about the pure amount of energy that's expounded by teenage girls. Yeah, uh, it, there's this real sense. I think when you are a teenage girl, that it involves so much labor just to be in the world. That mm -hmm. there's no way to just occupy your body. I think you become so aware at such a young age of um, you, you almost have this double gaze. You're aware of yourself as an object. And then there's almost a self-objectification that happens too. Mm -hmm. And I think for Evie as a character, it was interesting to write from her perspective because I think she she's internalized that so much that she sees the women around her almost as a as she's seen by the men in her life as an object. It's she's very focused on surface and detail and putting everyone in a hierarchy all the time, mm. which I think is what's so oppressive about about girlhood. Just this. This immense self-consciousness mm. that comes so early and earlier and right. earlier. When when the boys are just not indoctrinated into that narrative at all, mm. they're they're totally in this other realm. Mm. How how was your teens? <laughs> Have I given you the hint that maybe it wasn't <laughs> <That's> all great? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> no, but we know that you grew up in a in a big family, and I know that you live in Sonoma County. But, uh, I mean, did you live uh, out in the countryside? Did you grow up in a city? Yeah, um, out in the country, uh, far from town. It was pretty isolated, but I wasn't alone. I had so many siblings, mm -hmm. um, which is, that was part of why I made Evie an only child in the book, just to... Um, Finally. <laughs> <laughs> wish fulfillment. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> uh, just to... Um, have her have her be more psychologically isolated and mm. vulnerable in a way that I wasn't. 
But definitely uh, my childhood in California was really, you, you know, the counterculture was still so prevalent there. And, and California, especially the part where I'm from, is, is so full of weirdos, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I think is such a... It's so good for a fiction writer to but grow up that way. But in what way, weirdos? Oh, there's just so many bizarre ecosystems that meet in Northern California. There's the old hippies. Uh, there's Now it's a big wine region. So there's this influx of tourism and money for wine. Um, dairy farmers, uh, people in from San Francisco. And then people move to the country because they want to be isolated. They want to be away from society. And I think that isolation really can, can breed peculiarity. Mm -hmm. But your, your parents run the wine mm -hmm. vineyard yeah. also. Have they been doing that since you were young? Uh, yeah, my dad started the winery the year I was born. Okay. But so when you uh, grew up and went to school and your adolescence, um, could you, um, do you see your, is there a lot of you in Evie? Do you recognize her feelings a lot, like wanting to be seen? Yeah, um, and I think it was compounded in a big family. Mm. Uh, uh, to me, in every family, people are jostling for attention, even even only one child. Um, there's so many dynamics that are just uh, amplified in a bigger family, and even more amplified when you're talking about communes or sex. Um, and to me, that's what where, where the pleasure for me comes in writing about big groups, is because it is, in a way, just writing about family. Mm. Did you... Um um, I know that you were a child actor, <laughs> uh, talking about wanting to be seen. <laughs> Why did you, uh, w was it you that wanted to? Uh yeah, and I think it's for exactly that reason. Mm. Um, it's like it was some little uh, real estate that was mine mm. only. I was a terrible actor. <laughs> How old were you when you started? I was maybe 11 and 12. Mm. It was really a, a brief moment, blessedly brief. Um, unfortunately, the internet, I, you know, the internet wasn't really around back then, and now these things resurface that you thought had disappeared forever. I was in a made-for-TV movie about tennis. <laughs> uh, not my thing anymore. Uh, but to me, it was actually a really interesting experience to have. Um, as a writer, just because you got to engage at a young age with artifice and fantasy, mm -hmm. and then also... Um, in writing this book, I thought back to, to the experience of, of going on these auditions for parts. And even at age 12, I read these you know, scripts and felt like these weren't girls that I recognized, that, that this was not how I felt, that, that girls were not so easily, you know, that there's so many cliche parts mm -hmm. that I read for. Um, and so it was kind of a pleasure to write a novel where I felt like I could, I could write a young girl in a complex way that I think I would have responded to at that age. Mm -hmm. When did you start writing? Have you been writing since you were young? Yeah, um, I, I did write when I was young, and I think it came out of just loving to read so much. Mm -hmm. um, and reading is a great way to be alone in a big family, because mm. you can have your private world with the book. Um, so I think from a young age, I was so grateful for books. I remember I, I really didn't even realize that a book could be bad until college. <laughs> Someone was like, oh, that book's... So, and I was like, what? We're, you're allowed to say mean things about a book? I thought I was just so grateful that they existed. I wish that everyone felt that way about books. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I started writing at a young age. And then I went to kind of a hippie high school in California. Um, Knitting and yoga were... were <laughs> um, Sounds nice, though. It was nice. Mm -hmm. You've been to Sonoma County. You know yeah. how it is there. Very laid back. <laughs> yes. 
Um, and, but it was kind of great because in our literature classes, we didn't just read the classics, we read a lot of contemporary short fiction. Uh, so I read Richard Ford and Dennis Johnson mm. and Laurie Moore. Um, and for me, that was really eye-opening to read contemporary short stories at a young age, just because it, it made me realize that people were, were writing stories now and mm. that it was, it was something that, that was happening in contemporary culture. When did you realize that, that writing was something that you wanted to pursue? Um, I think f from a young age, and it's almost like the, the one thing I'm good at, we found out I'm not a good actress. <laughs> <laughs> but when, uh, I mean, you, you studied in, at Columbia. Yeah, um, I was actually an art major in undergrad, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I liked and thought was really helpful for writing too, because it's so similar. What kind of art did you do? Um, all kinds mm -hmm. uh, of painting and drawing and then new genres. So some sculpture and video. Uh, I think it's, you know, talking about a visual language and, and how do you um, make your point of view legible and accessible to other people. Um, so it was kind of a roundabout way of, of thinking about writing. Um, and then I went to Columbia for grad school for two years. Mm. So when, when was the first time that you wrote something when you realize that this is good, this works, I could do this. Do you remember that? Do you have a moment um, like that that you remember? There was a story I wrote, uh, and I think it was really one of the first short stories I, I wrote that really worked, and it's very short, but it's sort of about teenagers, a group of teenagers in, in Greenland. <laughs> um, but And I think it's so funny to read now because in, even in this tiny little story, I can see so many of the themes I'm interested in in this book mm -hmm. reoccurring, just group dynamics, sort of an extreme situation that's, uh, that I try to deal with in a very psychological way, almost trying to, to downplay any lurid parts of it and really foreground emotion. In one of the short stories on your website, um, or maybe it was... Um, I've read about it somewhere else that you were telling about uh, that you, when you were 13, you became friends with an older man, uh, like a pop cultural legend called Rodney Bingenheimer, which was who was a radio DJ in LA and broke a lot of uh, artists and, and also had a club. And can you tell us a bit about uh, how you got to know him and how your relationship worked? Yeah, um, it's funny because it was such a, a brief moment and it didn't feel like a big deal at all at the time. And it was just a situation that later as an adult, I looked back on and thought, what a bizarre situation. Mm -hmm. um, we weren't really friends. I'd only met him one time just walking around my hometown. Um, and he sort of wanted my address so we could write letters back and forth. And he was in his 50s at the time and I was 13. Um, and I really you know, was just <laughs> on board. And we wrote these incredibly childish letters back and forth, um, really not for very long, but uh, it, it was just a bizarre moment. Uh, and only later did I, I think about what, what the dynamic was, what was going on. Um, it really petered out and it wasn't a, nothing happened, nothing came of it. Um, but just as a dynamic, why was this older person trying to be in contact with me. What was I getting out of it? Yeah, what were you getting out of it? That's yeah. what I was thinking when I wrote it because he, I mean, he was in his 50s. Also, uh, if you see the documentary about him, the mayor of Sunset Strip, a kind of weird guy. Oh, yeah. Looking really weird and yeah. kind of creepy too. <laughs> yeah. So, so when I read about that, you know, he's, he con you know, made contact with you in the street and you were 13, I was like, how did she oh. dare? Yeah, I mean, 
I, I think anyone would look at it and find it creepy. I think what I was most interested in thinking about it as an adult is, what is the society, you know, because he has all these friends around him, mm -hmm. wh what is the society that tolerates it? Um, how is that so ingrained where it, it almost becomes normalized? Um, and even I wrote this essay, and it's not really about that. That's just kind of the entry point into thinking about it. Um, and, you know, all of the comments, it was the last time I ever read the comment section of anything. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it was all his friends who were just like, how dare you besmirch him? Rodney Bingenheimer is an angel. <laughs> and it's like, oh, and wow. you didn't even besmirch right, him. Right, exactly. Much. It was just sort of saying this person wanted to have a pen pal relationship with a 13-year-old girl. Uh, so that was sort of, you know, a funny moment of realization. Mm -hmm. Have you um, noticed any different difference in the reactions from your readers, if depending on which gender they are? Yeah, um, I think uh, the the women readers who have contacted me often have like a, a very visceral feeling of recognition. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of the uh, writing about adolescence and, and gender dynamics feels very familiar to them. Um, and uh, I think I've gotten some interesting responses from men too. I think a lot of them are surprised that that they feel like this is something that they didn't know or, or didn't imagine happened. Um, yeah, but I feel like it's been, uh, both genders have responded well to it, which is really gratifying for me as a reader. Or as a writer <laughs> and a reader. <laughs> I'm also going to say that we're going to open up um, for questions from the audience in a little while. So if you come to think of anything or maybe a question that I miss for, for about something Emma says. So please keep them till the end and we'll open up uh, to questions. Um, what kind of books inspire you to, uh, to uh, write? Um, for this book especially, I was thinking a lot about um, novels I really love that have ambiguous female friendships at their center. Uh, I think friendship is such an interesting realm mm -hmm. for fiction. I think we're, there are so many cultural codes around um, romantic relationships and family relationships. I feel like we kind of know what those relationships look like, and there's a very clear narrative. But friendship seems to operate in like international waters. You know, it's a sort of subject to, to such bizarre laws. Um, and it's this voluntary uh, relationship that can also be so intense and, and can really be one of the most important relationships that, that you can have. Um, so uh, Veronica by Mary Gateskill, mm -hmm. uh, which I, I love. And I think she writes so well about women. Um, and I think she writes so well about women being mean and women being dark. Um, and manipulative and, mm -hmm. and just full human beings. Uh, and Laurie Moore wrote a, a wonderful novella called Who Will Run the Frog Hospital? <laughs> I, I love saying that title every time I get to say it because <laughs> uh, it's just so peculiar. Um, but it's also about a, a dynamic between an older girl and a younger girl um, at that very specific age that you were talking about, sort of right when you're running into how the world sees you as a woman, um, sort of being forced to confront this, this reality of sex when you don't quite understand the vocabulary. Um, so those two books a lot. And then Joan Didion is so wonderful for, for writing about California mythology. Mm -hmm. She's from Northern California too. And I think reading her nonfiction especially was one of the first times I understood that you could even write about the place you were from, that, that California might have this special alchemy 
that that would be worth trying to to write about. Mm. When you um, could could you uh, explain how your relationship to writing looks? Do you find it easy to write? Uh, no, <laughs> and I wouldn't trust anyone who said yes. <laughs> um, no, to me, writing is is it doesn't come naturally, and I think it's such a it's such a funny thing to do because there's so much that happens in between, you know, thinking of something and, and typing. Uh, there's so much internal work, uh, so much circling around themes and trying to find the right container for everything. Um, I wish I was more disciplined about writing. I don't have a very good writing routine. Do you? No, no, <laughs> yeah, not at all. Who does? <laughs> I talk to my writer, writing friends and to also to other journalists and what all we do is complain about, yeah. why can't we get stuff done? Right, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes but do you, you have any tricks? No. I I didn't have internet when I worked on this book. That's a very good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I also hear that you don't have a smartphone. No, I still have a flip phone. Even my parents now are on smartphones and they laugh at me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that helps too. I think it helps uh, a certain kind of mental silence that mm. I find helpful. Mm. Where did you write uh, The Girls? Um, I wrote it when I was living in my friend's. Uh, he had kind of an outbuilding behind his apartment in Brooklyn. Um, so I stayed there. Uh, I lived there for maybe two years and while I was working on the girls. And it's very tiny. It's 9 by 12. So I feel like like this little rug we're on <laughs> right now. Um, but it was kind of a, the perfect place to write because it was so isolated and quiet. Um, and you did get the sense. It's like the, the room was the exact size of my brain. <laughs> So do we have, uh, maybe we can turn our heads to the audience to see if there's uh, any question that anyone wants to. Um, here's do you have a, a mic question and, and you just give me a little sign and I come by. Everybody's stunned. <laughs> <laughs> Anything? Okay, then I'll continue. <laughs> no? You, you, want, you want to continue to listen? Yeah, that's one question, perfect. Keep it close to your lips, please. Okay, thank you. Uh, nice to listen to you. Um, my question is a little bit embarrassing, but uh, I really thought about the sex scenes in the girls, and uh, how did you come up with the idea for that, and uh, why did you write it in that way? It's our first sexual experience, and it's both good and also very terrible. Thank you. Yeah. Um, first of all, it's so funny. Only in Europe, people call commune sects, here and I always mishear it as sex, so I never know which are oh, the sex scenes or but the I sex know scenes. It's the sex scenes. This is the sex scenes. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, <laughs> sex scenes are tricky, and it's tricky, especially with this narrator. Um, and what I wanted to think a lot about is is someone who is very alienated from their own physical experience, uh, who knew how to look at women and girls, but not how to be one and how to actually experience this physical, very visceral act. Um, so in many ways, I feel like Evie's mind is is really 10 different places while these sex scenes are happening. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted her, this first sexual experience uh, to be what we as readers would recognize as traumatic. Um, but in the moment, this 14-year-old girl is not experiencing it that way. And I, I think 
there's a, a cliched narrative that we have around uh, the way sex feels and the way sex looks. And I, I like the idea of writing a, a character, especially a young girl, who could have these conflicting feelings about sex, who might be in this situation that, again, as readers, we recognize is toxic. But um, in the moment, to have these, these conflicting feelings about it. Um, and then later, the sex scene with uh, Mitch and Suzanne. I was really interested in the triangulation in that scene, uh, the way Mitch is almost there just to allow um, Suzanne and Evie to have this release of, of their relationship, which has become very erotic, but, but would not be allowed to, to be expressed without the presence of a man to legitimize it. I think um, there's no language that Evie has to talk about uh, how she feels sexually about Suzanne, uh, especially in that time period. Um, so it's all, the, the men are sort of used as, you know, puppets when, when actually the feeling is between the women. Mm. Anyone else have a question? Oh, there's one. Hi. Um, I was wondering, you said you grew up with hearing about the Manson story, especially coming from California. But did you do any extra research when you were about to write the book? And did you discover anything that you didn't know before that surprised you? Yeah, um, I mean, I even before I thought about writing a book, I read so much uh, about the Manson family and Jonestown and other cults and groups, just because that's where my interest was. Um, and then I really put it aside uh, when I, before I wrote this novel, because I wanted to feel free to, to create a, a new version of it and to not feel any kind of responsibility to, to writing down the facts. I feel like there are so many people who that's where their interest really lies, is, is trying to, to rehash this story and get at some, some true thing about it. But, but for me, it's really more uh, about using it in a fictional, fictional way, uh, taking some kind of mood and atmosphere from it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you want it, there's so many holes you can disappear into if you get it really on a Manson kick. Uh, don't do it late at night. <laughs> In, in researching this, I, I started uh, checking out how all the Manson girls look today. Yeah. And I started looking at all different interviews and what they do today. So it really, it's, 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 it's uh, intoxicating. Yeah. It really is. I think, um, you know, th there's a lot of these message boards, and that's partly where the idea came from, is these people who pop up on the message boards who weren't the main characters that we know, but who were, you know, maybe they hitchhiked to the ranch and stayed there for three nights. Um, but still remember it, and uh, that to me interested. Well, it was interesting, not just that these people existed, but that they search out the message boards and make themselves known. Mm. You know, I thought, w what if that's their defining characteristic? Their one narrative about themselves was that they had this brush with with this infamous moment, and and to me, that's an interesting place to start mm. thinking fictionally. Which was the hardest part of the book to write? Um. <sighs> Uh, I think for me, it's it's trying to balance, you know, um, this book which could so easily become sensational or lurid or prurient even, uh, and and really trying to almost set this challenge. Could you write a book where this murder happened, but it almost is the least important thing mm -hmm. that happens in the book? I think I was much more interested in writing about psychological violence. Uh, I think that's the most obvious and overt moment of violence in the book, but there are so many smaller moments that I think feel, to me anyway, very common. Um, 
just a, of psychological violence, betrayal in, in family relationships, in friendships. Mm. Do you have any examples from the book for, for what you're yeah. talking about? Um, even to me, Evie's relationship with her mother, mm. uh, just, just these moments where she sees the need in her mother and then is, is repelled by it. Mm. To me, there's something quite, quite violent, but also understandable in that act. Um, and then just, just being forced to confront how, how disappointing the adult world is as a teenager whose ideals are so pure in a way. And it's hard for them, I think, to understand the gray area, which is where all adults live, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, even, even in her friendship with Connie, I feel like uh, there's a scene where um, she sees her old friend and her old friend rejects her in this kind of silly way. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I wanted it to feel almost on the level of, of a violent act for Evie. Do we have another question? No, you're through winter. I don't think so. Okay, <laughs> good. Um, you craft very beautiful sentences, and um, you, you, you pay a lot of attention to detail. And uh, when you work, how do you... Uh, if, if it, uh, as a writer, I'm interested in this. Like, how do you craft your sentences... Do you, do you do a first draft and then go back and perfect them and like, oh, we need another adjective there? Like, how do you work? Yeah, um, I think a lot of it is just rhythm, the way mm -hmm. things sound. Um, so for me, that's, that's where a lot of it comes from. And then also trying to think about details that are unexpected. I, th I think automatically our, our brain goes to a, a detail or a metaphor, and then it's about almost looking at the thing adjacent to, to the expected detail. Um, so for me, that's an, a good way to think about it. Um. There are some words that uh, that that uh, reappear in yeah, the book. Yeah, definitely. And the one word that I thought of while reading is the word rot. Yeah. That things look rotted. There's rot within things. Things taste rotted. Yeah. What is your relationship to the word rot? Um. It, for me, it's like a, it's a very good kernel that the book could almost be reduced to in a way. And mm -hmm. I think about it a lot being from California too, which is such, on the surface, such a beautiful place. To me, the landscape, um, I, I just find it so stirring every time I go back there. And there's something in it that really resonates with me in this beautiful landscape. But at the same time, there's this way that the landscape is almost trying to kill everyone <laughs> who lives there all the time. Uh, I grew up on the San Andreas Fault, which is a major earthquake. Mm -hmm. uh, the year I was born, there was a huge earthquake in San Francisco. And I grew up being extremely aware all the time that there was this latent danger in the ground. Um, and now there's this drought in California, which mm -hmm. is really terrible. Um, and the, the place where I'm from on the coast, it's this beautiful coastline. Again, it looks like paradise, but the water is frigid and full of great white sharks. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's such an obvious metaphor in a way. Um, so to me, it's a, this book is a lot about the surface of things and, and what's underneath the surface. What's, what's the darkness under there? And I think that goes back to almost the pictures of, of these young girls involved in the crimes. These angelic faces mm. and sort of what's, what's inside, what's under the surface. Mm. Um, 
how much of, of the book was written before you got your like famous book deal and money? Did you write it parts of it during like under pressure or were you no, finished with I, it? No, I really I wrote the whole book and then sent and it then, to my oh, agent. Okay, good. Um, which I think was a really nice thing. I can't imagine doing it otherwise. Uh, I think what's so nice about writing a book is it's such a private thing, especially your first book. You only have your own voice in your head, hopefully. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, for me, putting the book out into the world, I had no expectations. Mm. How long did it take you to write it? Um, I'd been circling around themes that are in the book for a long time, mm. uh, and I had different versions of the book. Uh, but in this in this form, really two years, maybe two or three years, mm. and then one very intense summer. Are there any major parts that that changed during the course of the book? Um, I mean. It did, I feel like a book, this book especially, it was such a mess until it wasn't, you know? And I wish there was a, a better, more helpful way to talk about the process. But it's helpful to remind myself of now when I'm working on something new is, you know, there's so long when it's not a book. And then really it's the last week that it feels like a book. And I feel like that when I finished the book and I was in my little hut, <laughs> And I went outside and it was a really sunny day. And I just sort of sat there for 10 minutes in the sun and I really knew that the book was done. And I feel like that's the happiest I'll ever feel about the book. <laughs> and everything that came after, you know, feels not true and pure in the way that that moment did. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. <laughs> but so, um, are you working on a new book now? Yes. <laughs> uh, another weird thing about writing a book is that it's been, you know, a few years, well, a year and a half, two years since since I finished the book. Um, and I edited it a little after I was finished, but really the book for me ended in a way uh, over a year ago. So in that time I've started something new. Can you tell us anything about it? Um, it's still so n new, so I'm. it's still not a book yet. <laughs> Uh, but I think for me the the question is how do I how do I keep my own interest as a writer, mm -hmm. um, which will always be a different set of challenges. I feel like each book, you know, it's like a little puzzle, and and the writer has to figure it out. Um, so I, I really feel like I I solved the little puzzle of this book, and now I want to create a new set of challenges. Mm. Are you at all affected by the attention that that this book is getting? I I really tried to remind myself that that I I would have written this book even if no one wanted to read it, um, and that the the noise and response to the book, uh, while very gratifying and alienating at the same time, uh, also really doesn't have to do with me mm. in a strange way, and it's really not my business almost. So as much as I can, not uh, feel affected by it, like that's that's what I really hope for. Mm. I'd like to go back just a little bit um, to the older Evie. We were mainly talked about the younger Evie. And uh, when, when, when uh, crafting the older Evie, uh, why did you put her um, between jobs? And it, it seems like her life really never really maybe yeah. ma made it on track. Definitely. Um, I think in the US especially, there's such a familiar narrative of redemption. When somebody goes through a traumatic event or, you know, there's a big challenge. The idea is you come out the other side and, and you've learned something and you've gotten stronger as a person um, or, th or there's some moral to be gleaned from the story. And, and I really like the idea of writing a book where there's no moral 
and nobody learns anything. Uh, <laughs> sorry to give it away. <laughs> um, and uh, really, to me, that felt more true to how life operates, that often these things happen to us and, and can affect us so deeply, but we never really come to any satisfying conclusion about what they mean. We can really circle around them um, for a long time, I think, without, without any resolution. Uh, so I like the idea of this older character who, in a way, hadn't moved past this one summer, um, whose present was very much taken hostage by this past experience. Mm. When, uh, when the couple comes uh, to, to the house that she's house-sitting, um, it's kind of brief in a weird way. And, and her meeting with this Sasha is also brief, but also changes everything. Yeah. And when, when writing that, how did you decide not to make that, um, I won't say conflict, but meeting more dramatic? Yeah, um, I think I wanted to, to put two things together without needing to, to you know, amplify the drama so much in one that it exactly mirrored the other, or, um, or that I, I didn't want to you know, write a book that, that had a real point about the female experience or a, a lecture on, on female experience. And so for me, the, the scenes in 1969 are so visceral in a way. There's so much in a teenager's point of view. I like the idea of having um, the contemporary scenes be much quieter and be kind of just the, the little domino that, that brings these scenes back to Evie. Um, and yeah, I feel like just putting them together is enough for for the reader to draw their own conclusions. I think that's what's so tricky, and I know you write nonfiction a lot, um, but maybe it's the same, is that I, I feel like uh, fiction I'm drawn to really asks questions and it doesn't give answers. Mm. And so that's what I was trying to do in putting this contemporary frame on this, this older story, is I feel like the reader finds their own resonance. Mm. It does leave you with a lot of questions. Yeah. Which is it. both nice and frustrating, <laughs> <laughs> depending on which, what kind of person you are. <laughs> I just want to see if there's any more questions that come up during the last part of our talk. Yeah. One up there. One. I grab the microphone and I... No, I won't throw it. <laughs> You've done four interviews. This is your fifth <laughs> interview for the day. Fifth there interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, talking about the older Evie, does she live with you? Do you think what she's doing, how she's doing now, does she like, did she stay with you after writing the book? That's a good question. Yeah, um, she did. Uh, I, th I think I spent so much time with this book and especially writing a, a first-person novel, it's so different from writing third-person. Um, you really start to know how, how this person's mind works. Um, so I think, yeah. To me, she she does feel like she's still present. Anyone else? Yeah, you have answered like all my questions too, <laughs> but I still feel that there's so much more I'd like to know. <laughs> but what are you reading right now? Gosh, um, well, I don't know. <laughs> my sister went to the American bookstore in Sodermalm. Today? On Sodoma, yeah, on uh, and Sodoma got me a book which I haven't read yet, Purity by Jonathan Franzen. Mm -hmm. So I'll start that soon. Um, but I've been reading a lot of Edith Wharton this mm -hmm. summer. I feel like she's kind of a good corrective. I'm not sure if I like New York, 
but she writes so beautifully about New York. So she's kind of convincing me a little bit that, Are you that I like New York a little better than I do. Are you longing to go back to California? I do. I really miss California. To me, California, first of all, the weirdos are better in California. <laughs> um, but also, California is such a um, sensual place to me, both the landscape and um, sort of food and the, just the experience of being human feels a lot better to me. It feels human scale. New York is so um, focused on, on work and producing. People really think in terms of years in, in New York. You know, what, what will you do in a year? What, where will you be in five years, 10 years? And everything you do is aimed at this goal. And in California, people really don't think beyond dinner time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always a good dinner. <laughs> Maybe Northern California. And that's a generalization, but I'll stick by it. <laughs> but did it affect the book, you think, that it was written in New York? Yeah, I think definitely. I, I feel like I couldn't have written it in California, uh, not only because I'd be distracted, but um, I feel like it's hard to get a, a good sense of the place you're from until you leave. Mm. In California, especially, it's such an amorphous, bizarre little little community. So it's it's helpful to get some distance on it. When reading your book, I... Uh, immediately started thinking about uh, the Italian writer Elena Ferrante yeah. and her Naples series that I finished this summer, all four parts, because they're out in English. There's only one part out in Swedish yet. And uh, it's the same way of, of describing the inner workings of, of uh, well, that's a girl growing old. Yeah. But the thing you were talking about with friendships Definitely. and such. Friendships. I feel like it's having a really interesting moment in yeah. fiction where it's, it's really coming to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's happening now? I don't know. I've, I've thought about it a lot because I've been talking so much about female friendship. Why, why this moment? I feel like in a way we're, we're starting to take women's inner lives more seriously instead of trying to relegate it to the realm of, of chiclet or something like that. Um, I feel like there, there's some kind of cultural shift happening in that direction. But I'm not sure what would have, what would have tripped it off. Do you have any... Thoughts no, or ideas? No, but I'm hoping for what you're saying. Yeah, me too. <laughs> because it is tiresome that everything that has to do with female emotion is always uh, made small. Right. And irrelevant. Yeah. And that's uh, everything from from female fandom to uh, uh, to uh, like chiclet boots. Right. So let's hope that this was uh, like the start of a <laughs> of a new <laughs> beginning. Yeah. In that way. Yeah. I was thinking about that, just trying to write about history. I think we're so familiar with certain styles of talking about historical events. Um, and I love books like this, but mm -hmm. I thought there must be some way to engage with a historical event from a more emotional standpoint. I'm thinking of like Don DeLillo's books, mm -hmm. um, like Libra, which uh, is kind of a fictional retelling of the, the Kennedy assassination. There's such a, a manic quality to these writings, and it really tries to engage with all the political aspects of the moment. It's so much about the cultural moment. And so I really thought, could you write a book that replaced all of that um, mania and hyper-intellectual you know, dissection with this hyper-intellectual dissection of emotion, mm. which we tend to think of as, as not serious or... You know, especially a teenage girl narrator, which mm. we also really can easily dismiss. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Emma, thank for you coming so here much. and talking to us. And uh, I'd like to give her, give you a big applause. <laughs> thank you so <laughs> thank much. You. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.